Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. And it has been a couple of months, I think, since we last recorded an episode. And it's not because um, I haven't wanted to do it, but it's because we've actually been so, so busy uh, in this bull market that we've been experiencing. And at Resource Insider, We've been doing deals, we've been engaging with our subscribers, and I've spent almost all of my time out hunting for new opportunities. And it's been highly lucrative for myself and our members, and and we've been very happy how the last few months have gone. And for those of you who are are watching this on video as opposed to listening to the audio version of this podcast, you can probably see I'm not in my normal office or at my house. I'm actually up at Whistler this week, and I came up here to have a vacation. supposed to be a week of hiking and dinners and good time, but then another deal came across our desk that we ended up having to do, so I've been sitting at this desk all week and, and working our way through that. And it's just been such you know, exciting times in the market, and... I haven't been able to pull myself away and you know mining is so cyclical it's just it's strike while the iron is hot and that's what we've been focused on however I wanted to take some time away from this and get back to doing this podcast in particular because I think it's going to be and I want to hear your feedback on this but I think it will be one of the most valuable podcasts our listeners are ever going to hear uh, it's going to be extremely valuable for those of you who are at home investing in junior mining and exploration companies. And it's also going to be valuable for CEOs that are running these companies and are maybe not from a technical background. Maybe they have a finance background, for example. So we have had a lot of guests on this show. We've had Frank Justra and Ross Beatty and Marco Day, you know, brilliant entrepreneurs. But I'm going to say there are probably few things we've discussed that are going to be able to help you um, as an investor better allocate capital into this sector. And I'm kind of giving away a bit of uh, my secret sauce here today because at Resource Insider, you know, we don't exist in a vacuum. I heavily rely on other experts in the space when we're making our investment decisions. We operate uh, very similar to a private equity firm or hedge fund or another professional investor insofar that we use teams of very, very experienced people. And my guest today uh, is a longtime friend and one of these people that I have relied really heavily on, uh, particularly when evaluating exploration in junior projects, particularly gold in greenstone belts, uh, which is his speciality. But there's, not, there's almost not been a resource insider deal that I have uh, not run by him, and he's invested in many of them with his own money. So we're going to get into today um, his background, uh, why I rely so heavily on him, and what he's doing with his own company. Uh, and so his name is Francis McDonald. He is the executive vice president of Canorland Minerals. And I think without further ado, it's time to introduce him. So Francis, welcome to the show today. Good to be here, Jamie. Thanks for having me. So what I was thinking about, uh, you know, we've, we've been talking about recording this episode for a few months now, and we're going to title this episode, The Science of Discovery. We're going to talk about what I would consider a more quantitative approach to exploration and understanding discovery. And we'll get into that in a minute. But I was trying to remember how long have we known each other and been working together now? It's been about five years, I think. 
Yeah, I think it's been about five years. I think I think the first time we met each other was in a CD bar in Vancouver at some mining drinks thing, and uh, you know, a good place to meet new new people. Yeah, and and you just come off working for Newmont in Ethiopia, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I was working for Newmont in Ethiopia, and then before that in West Africa, and and before that at the Hope Bay project in Nunavut. So I think, you know, that was a very interesting time in your life because it was shortly after that that you, got, you launched Knorland with Zach Flood, who's still the CEO of the company uh, and your partner there. Can you give us a bit of an overview of what Knorland is and, and the thesis that, that started that company? Yeah, sure. So Knorland started in 2016 and, and there's four founders in the company, Zach Flood, who you mentioned, and Scott Smith and Dave Stevenson as well. And so we, we had all worked together at the Hope Bay project in 2007, and, and we had kind of gone through a couple renditions of, of companies before this as well. And in 2016, the gold price took that bump from about $1050 to $1,300, and it seemed like, okay, this is probably the bottom. And so we, we came together, started putting together some gold ideas or gold exploration ideas, and uh, went to John Tognetti at Haywood Securities, and he gave us the seed funding to get this this company started. And so we, it took us a while to kind of get into the project generator model, which is where we settled for the first while. And so what our kind of goal was to go out and look for big scale greenfields projects and and really go after the, the greenfield space because we all felt that that was being underfunded relative to relative to brownfields and, and more advanced, uh, more advanced targets. Okay. So you basically had a few hundred thousand dollars of other people's money in your pockets. You were four guys at the time working out of your respective apartments. Um, and now in the coming weeks or months, you guys are on the track to list as a public company after about five years, uh, partnerships with some of the biggest mining companies in the world, uh, what could potentially end up being a very major discovery under your belt and, you know, a lot of other things that we're going to talk about here. So let's, let's start our conversation today uh, by talking about what Knorland's methodology is and, and how it's led to what you've been calling this discovery model. Sure. So Knorland's methodology, you know, I think it comes from the places that we've worked at before. So my background is with Newmont and same with Scott Smith's and Zach was with the Ivanhoe group. And, and so these are companies that take a really big scale approach to exploration. And, you know, the Ivanhoe group has done exploration all over the world and screened a huge amount of ground and, and same with Newmont as well. And so, you know, we've, we've kind of taken these skill sets that we've we've learned from these companies and we're trying to apply it to our own company. And I think the biggest key to, to the success of those companies is, is the scale that you think of. And in terms of grass fields, or sorry, uh, green fields exploration, I think you really have to look at the big picture first. And, and, you know, it's really all about initial land selection and screening a huge amount of ground because you can have a geologic model and you can think that something's somewhere, but there's always going to be surprises. And if you don't have the land and you haven't screened enough of it in the first place, then you're kind of shooting, shooting yourself in the foot, really. So is, so, is starting with these massive land packages, is that, does that differ from what you see the average exploration company doing? 
Yeah, I think so. You know, and so I think the initial size of land package that we started with on all of our projects was about 50,000 hectares or 500 square kilometers. And in some parts of the world, that's small. Like when you go to West Africa, the land packages are large. There are 1,000 to 2,000 square kilometers. But in Canada, I would say the typical size of a land package is, you know, kind of maybe 5,000 to 10,000 hectares or, or 500 square kilometers to 1,000 square kilometers. And so there's always these kind of um, rules of thumb that you hear about that one project within 1,000 makes a mine. And, and so, you know, I think there's kind of a bit of a falsehood in there. It should really be how much land that you've explored. And if you take a thousand um, projects that are, you know, let's say a thousand hectares, that gives you uh, a million hectares of ground. And so if you want to be successful, then go out and screen a million hectares of ground. And statistically, you'll, you'll find a deposit, basically. So I guess the question is, how do you screen that ground, uh, you know, quickly, efficiently, and cost-effectively so that when you do find this deposit, it's worth your time and it's, it creates value for shareholders? Yeah, so, I mean, I think it depends on the commodities that you're looking for in part. Uh, and so we've kind of focused on gold because Canada has uh, amazing gold potential. The Abitibi Greenstone Belt has, has an endowment of about 225 million ounces of gold. It's the second largest gold producing district in the world. And so, and, and, you know, my background and Scott's background is in gold. And so, you know, we, we started out looking for gold um, because Canada is a good place to look for gold. And so in my mind, if you're looking for gold, the primary exploration technique is geochemistry and gold, a lot of the time doesn't necessarily have a specific geophysical signature. So, you know, geochemistry is really the main tool and you really need to have some kind of sample that has gold in it. That's the, that's the first pass thing. And so that's kind of how we've gone out and designed these programs is we do these massive geochemical programs and, and, and see what comes out of it. And then, you know, it's, it's really just a rate and rank exercise of, of screening enough ground with geochemistry, follow up on the anomalies and, and, you know, eventually you find something. So before we get into the details of this and, and go through the presentation you've got ready, can you kind of give us the highlights of Land's successes to date? Sure. So we've been in operation for four years. We started as a private company in 2016. And, and like you said, you know, we started out with about uh, 350000 of of somebody else's money. And from that, we've, we've raised about $3 million, uh, in private placements in, in a private company over four years. We've leveraged that to put 15 million in the ground through partner spend. We've brought in 3 million in cash payments and management fees because we operate the programs for our, for our partners. So Kenorland is effectively break even after four years in, in operation with, with a huge portfolio. And so we've screened um, after a program we're doing right now, it'll be about uh, 260,000 hectares of ground with geochemistry. And that's led to this discovery that we've made in, in Quebec at our, at our Renault target in the FROTET project, where we, we put out some drill results a couple of weeks ago that it was, it was 29 meters at eight and a half grams in the, on the first initial drill program. 
And so we've kind of decided that now is a good time to to take Kenorland public. So we're pursuing an, an RTO transaction with Northway Resources, which is a company that we started um, to go after a specific project. And so, you know, it's it's we've been in operation for four years. We've been doing a ton of exploration with with major partners like Sumitomo and Freeport McMoran and Newmont. And so, you know, it's it's we figured that this is a really good time in the market and it's time to open the kimono and, you know, kind of show people what we've been up to for the last four years. Okay. So you've been working with these major partners. Uh, you had a, you know, you were a major shareholder in another company that you helped start, uh, Northway Minerals. Zach Flood, the CEO of Kenorland, was also running this. Uh, you're going to combine those assets, um, do a financing, uh, and Kenorland's going to be a public company after that. And you're going to continue. Um, are you going to continue this style of work of building partnerships and doing joint ventures with major companies? Are you going to start drilling these assets yourself? Has, does that change the reality for Kenorland or the strategy? Yeah, it absolutely changes it. And, you know, the reason why we weren't going out and taking these shots ourselves was because it was a bad time in the market. Um, we were a private company and so we were raising money at, you know, a seven or $8 million valuation. And so, you know, to go out and drill a target ourselves to the sufficiency that it should have on a first pass program, we would take something like 40 or 50% dilution. And so mm -hmm. at that point it didn't make sense to do that. But I think now we can raise money at a high enough valuation that, that we're going to go out and start taking shots ourselves. And so it's really going to be a hybrid model where we have these big joint ventures on the go and we've got three that are operating now and we've got three projects that we're going to look to advance ourselves and, and one, one specifically in Alaska, the Healy project, which we're going to go out and put, um, you know, kind of three to 5,000 meters of drilling into ourselves next year. Okay. And I guess I should have started this conversation by saying uh, that I'm also a shareholder in Kenorland and I was one of the, the early shareholders several years ago. And so I'm pretty excited about this, this, you know, this RTO that you guys have coming up. And, um, you know, I'm excited to see a lot more of that, uh, I guess, intellectual capital being uh, kind of remaining in, in the company and getting the full value for that, which is, of course, you know, the, there's the upside and the downside of the joint venture model, right? Is somebody else pays for it, but somebody else also gets the majority of the upside. So I'm excited to see sure. after you've proven the effectiveness of what you guys are doing, now more of that remain as 100% ownership in Orland. Yeah, and I think, you know, some people love the project generator model, some people hate it. And, you know, so now we're kind of going to be bridging bridging both sides of it where, hmm. you know, we've already had these deals signed with major partners and, you know, honestly, if we went back and we could, you know, do it ourselves now after this this kind of huge increase in the gold price and, and the success that we've had on, on our FROTEP project, we might look at doing that ourselves. But, you know, that's where we're at. And it's really nice to have a big partner that can really kind of, that can really take on significant exploration and put a lot of money in the ground really quickly. Okay. So I think it's time uh, that we really get into the weeds here and start talking about what you guys have learned over the last four years doing this and it's really the discovery model that you've put together. Uh, so I think you've got a presentation that you want to share with us now. Yeah, that's, um, I'll bring that up here.
So we we've called this so, the dis- so Francis. I can't see a shared screen yet. Oh, okay. Let's share screen. That will help. There we go. Okay. Perfect. Okay. So we we've kind of called this the the discovery study, and and the way this come came about was there's two reasons. Um, one is that that Newmont kind of looks at metrics like this for their internal kind of rate and rank. And then we were thinking about these metrics uh, for the Healy project at in, in Northway Resources and asking ourselves the questions, you know, what kind of drill intersects should we see on the first program? How many meters should we drill? You know, when do we walk away from this project? When do we keep going? And so that really kind of spawned this study is, is because I don't think we really had a good feel for it internally of, of what we should be looking for. And, and I think as an exploration company, that's kind of fundamental. You should really know what you're looking for. And so this is, we, we really went into the weeds, like you said, and, and really got into it and, and started looking at all of the more than 2 million ounce deposits in Canada and, and seeing what they looked like in the early or initial drilling. And so in terms of disclosure, forward-looking statements, um, there's going to be some forward-looking statements. And then also, as another, as another kind of um, disclaimer, this data has been compiled from a number of different sources, and we don't guarantee the accuracy or, of it or, or you know, the completeness of it. So it's, it's from wherever we could get it from and, and kind of use it at your own risk, basically. So I think to start out, um, a good thing to do is, is look at the locations of these more than 2 million ounce deposits in Canada. And so when you add up all of the resources and the historic production from these gold deposits, there are 83 deposits in Canada that have more than 2 million ounces of gold. And so these are excluding copper dominant porphyry systems or, or other deposit types where gold isn't the primary commodity. And so, so adding up, know, if I might ask, why, why 2 million ounces? Why was that the size that you chose as your sort of benchmark cutoff? Uh, that's a good question. It's kind of nominal. I mean, you, you, could, you could bump it up probably. I think looking at 1 million ounce deposits, I don't think a 1 million ounce deposit is necessarily going to excite many people or be uh, mineable in terms of economic yeah. terms. Two million ounce deposit, possibly. Um, you know, once you have two million ounces, lots of people have started mining at that point, and then eventually you find more and more as you go. And you know, you you could do this at any nominal cutoff, basically. But um, I thought two million was a good was a good thing to look at. So this was the size where it really gets worth going after, really. Yeah, I think people in in the right jurisdiction would be excited about a two million ounce deposit. Okay. So um, when you add up all of those ounces and, and all of these greater than 2 million ounce deposits, that gives Canada a total endowment of about 654 million ounces. And so that's current resources, but also, also historic production as well. And when we look at these in terms of districts, I think this is really important to look at. And so there are six geological domains in Canada that, that hold 87% of that endowment of the 654 million ounces. 
And so 75% of that endowment is in Archean greenstone belts. And so for non-geologists out there, these are volcanic and sedimentary rocks that formed uh, at about 2.7 billion years ago. And these are some of the most prospective rocks for gold deposits on the planet. And then another notable district is the Golden Triangle, which has about 118 million ounces of gold. And that's about 18% of the total endowment. And so in terms of, you know, where do you want to be? I think as an exploration company, it's probably good to stick in these known districts. And obvious, obviously there are some areas where there's no known deposits and you can go out and make a significant discovery. And I think the Eleanor deposit is a really good example of that. But in general, you know, for kind of lowering your risk, it's, it's, it's better to stay in these, in these known districts because there are certain geologic criteria that are causing the gold to form in these districts. Mm. Yeah, I mean, by looking at this, it's almost not worth your time focusing on anything besides the Southern Abitibi and the Golden Triangle. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of gold in those places. And... You know, I I wouldn't say that. So, you know, like I said, Eliana, am I am I going to piss off a lot of geologists by saying that? <laughs> that probably. Yeah, probably. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, you know, you look at it in terms of risk and, and like I think the lower risk areas are obviously the places that have a lot of historic known endowment. And this mm -hmm. is the way that we kind of look at things in Kenorland is like let's stick in these districts that have a lot of endowment and let's just use different exploration methods and look in places where people haven't looked before around these big, these big well-endowed districts. Okay. And so um, with these, these 80 or so deposits, I've, I've broken these out into three different classes and, and this is how they've been discovered. And so that would be greenfields, brownfields, and historic. And greenfields, as a definition, these are deposits that were discovered in an, in an area where there's no significant gold deposits found before. And so an example of that, again, would be the Eleanor deposit in James Bay. Brownfield deposits are deposits that were discovered around already known significant gold deposits and so mm -hmm. there would be some say like the the Laurent deposit in in the southern Abitibi in Quebec um, that was discovered in in a really well-known and endowed area before would you would you consider Great Bear to fall into that category um, Great Bear no I wouldn't and the reason is because there wasn't a historic resource there mm -hmm. I don't think and there so it's, was it's in that well-known red lake district but it, it didn't have the resource or it wasn't what in close enough proximity to another mine for it to really fall into the brownfields category yeah exactly i mean it's i think it's probably 20 or 30 kilometers from red mm -hmm. lake or maybe even more um so no i don't think i would call that i i wouldn't call that brownfields okay so that would be, fit the greenfields definition then yeah, 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 that would be the Greenfields definition. Uh, and then the last one is a historic. And so these would be deposits that were found by prospecting and in the early days of, of Canada, in the frontier days, so 1910, 1920, 1930. And that's when deposits like Red Lake were discovered and Kerr Addison and, and Hollinger McIntyre and the Timmins camp. And so 
when you look at these three classifications and look at the, the total number of deposits by class and the total number of ounces by class, um, it kind of breaks down into roughly one third for each. And, and Greenfields has been responsible for slightly more than, than the historic or brownfield deposits as well. Hmm. Now, and we talked about this earlier, uh, but this is not necessarily representative of the cost of finding these, these deposits, right? Like uh, the cost of finding a million or two million ounces of, green, of greenfields might not be the same or likely isn't the same as the cost of, uh, you know, identifying a new two million ounces in, in a historic deposit, correct? Yeah, exactly. So if, if you really wanted to look at it, you would have to look at the total number of dollars spent in terms of these classes and mm -hmm. look at the total return on investment. But that is, uh, that'll be a study for another time, I think. All right. Podcast number two. Yeah. Uh, and so this is a slide where we look at uh, when these deposits were discovered by the greenfields, brownfields, and historic classes. And so um, all of the historic deposits were kind of uh, pre-1950s, and, and those were really the prospecting deposits where, you know, someone went up to an outcrop, found a quartz vein, there was just tons of gold in it, and they basically started sinking a shaft into it already. And so in the 1950s, these, these types of deposits were being depleted, and people had to start using new methods. And so after the 50s and in the 60s, this is when airborne geophysics started being flown. And so in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, there was a ton of airborne geophysics flown and, and deposits were found using those methodologies. Um, in the 1980s, you see this huge jump in, in discoveries of greenfields and brownfields types. And I think that's due to flow-through financing when that was introduced. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what flow-through financing is? Because a lot of our viewers are, are not Canadian. So in terms, so flow through is, a, is a, a tax benefit that the Canadian government brought in in the 1980s. And the, the basic of it is when an investor in, puts money into a flow through financing, that's tax deductible. And so you can effectively decrease your taxable income. So for people that are looking to um, take themselves out of a certain tax bracket into a lower tax bracket, it's, it's a really attractive uh, investment tool. But yeah, but this, you know, this graph is just so good to show that like, you know, obviously more money was spent on exploration at that time. And then it's, it's just a nice clear demonstrator of the more dollars spent, the more things found. Right. And I mean, that, that seems obvious, but it is nice to have that shown so starkly. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in the 80s, as you can see here, the, the number of discoveries of significant gold deposits, it's going down every decade. And so from 1980 to 2000, there was 22 grassroots discoveries in Canada. And so, uh, you know, examples of this would be the Hemlo deposit, which was a 20 million ounce deposit discovered in 1981. Um, and then from 2000 to 2020, there were only five grassroots discoveries made. And so, you know, as we're going in time, the number of grassroots discoveries is going down. And so why is this is a question. Um, and so my take on it is that grassroots exploration has been under, underfunded relative to brownfields exploration. Okay. So... 
this is we're going to ta start talking about discovery, which is which is really the point of this study. And discovery is a word that's thrown around a lot, and so we can look at it qualitatively or we can look at it quantitatively. And so discovery is really one of the largest value addition periods during the cycle of a mining project. And this graph is something that people have probably seen before. This is the Lassonde curve that, that Pierre Lassonde came up with, I think, in the 80s. And so it's really the life of an exploration project. And it starts with a concept. So you have geologists saying, okay, I think we should go out to this part of this part of the world or this part of Canada and we should look here. And so, you know, that takes a little bit of time to get the financing and get the people together and acquire the land and permits and all that kind of thing. And and so usually that culminates in, in initial exploration programs. And that takes generally one to two years. And so the successful outcome of an initial exploration program is usually a, a drill program that has significant drill intersects on the first program. And so I think we've seen this in, in the last kind of two years or so where there's been an exploration company that's got a 10 to $20 million market cap. They put out some incredible drill results on a first pass program and overnight it's, it's a hundred to $150 million market cap company. So there's an incredible amount of value that's added on these initial exploration programs. Yeah. And that's what so many resource investors are looking for, right? These like the quote unquote 10 bagger, which you almost, I mean, that is largely driven by discovery. Exactly. That's it. And so, you know, so it's driven by discovery, but then, so how do we quantify this and recognize it as it's happening? And so like and, we're saying, and how do you, how do investors at home select them? Right. Because it's all good and well to hear some promoter stand up on a podium somewhere and tell you he's got the best thing in the world. But I would say almost no investors know what a discovery actually looks like from a geological perspective. And I would even say few people operating in this sector know that either. Exactly. And, and honestly, you know, before I did this study, I was one of those people that didn't really, uh, recognize it either. And so, you know, I think people that have been involved in a discovery obviously know that discovery story really well. But, you know, I don't think there's many people that have been involved in the whole breadth of discoveries in Canada. So that's something, you know, that's why we went and did this is, is to look at that and, and kind of take a really big picture look at discovery and, and see what it actually looks like. And All so, right, Francis, in, tell us how to make millions of dollars now making discoveries. <laughs> that, I'm gonna, I'll keep that secret to myself. But, uh, <laughs> um, but so to recognize a discovery, I think you really have to look at the drilling. And because that's really where a lot of the times a discovery is defined is, is on the initial drilling. And so uh, as a definition, a discovery hole is the best drill hole on the initial drill program into the eventual mineral deposit. So what we did was we, we did a huge amount of data compilation over all of these 83 gold deposits that are over 2 million ounces and went through an, an incredible amount of, of reports and, and press releases and all any, any kind of data source we could find to compile the initial drilling out of all of these deposits. And so a lot of some of them there's a number of them that we couldn't find anything so they're not included here but if you dig deep enough and long enough you can actually find the initial drilling into these deposits and so 
as a definition, I think one of the things that we're going to talk about a lot in the rest of this presentation is this, this um, concept of GT, which is grade times thickness of a drill hole intersect. And so as an example, they explain this, uh, the grade would be 10 grams per ton, the thickness is 10 meters, and so that's a 100 GT hole because it's 10 meters times 10 grams. And so, and so if we can just define thickness a little uh, more thoroughly, so does that mean, you know, like it's not the length of the entire drill hole for people that are at home wondering about that. It's the, the portion of that drill hole that that mineralization occurs over, right? Yeah, exactly. So when people report drill intersects, you know, it would be five meters at 10 grams per ton. So it would be that five meters that has gold in it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is a, a graph of all of the GT intersects into these deposits that we could find. And so there's a there's a wide variety of these and we'll talk about some of the variables that influence these. Um, but on the on the on the high side, you have deposits like Bruce Jack where, you know, they put out those insane drill results of like one and a half meters at 25,000 grams per ton. And so that's off off the charts. Um, and just as a few other examples, Eleanor was about a 300 GT hole on the first program. Um, Cote Lake was about 220 meters or sorry, 220 GT. But then on the low side, you have some really kind of surprising ones as well. So muscle white is in Northern Ontario and I think it's a five or 6 million ounce deposit. And the best GT hole on the program was a 50 GT intersect. So you know, it's, it's a wide variety. There's, there's a lot of ways, a lot of factors that influence this. But when you look at it statistically, um, the median out of all of these deposits is 134 GT hole. And if you want to capture 80% of, of these deposits, it's a 75 GT hole. Hmm. Okay. So when we just look at, at grassroots or greenfields discoveries, these numbers change a little bit and they, they go down a little bit. Uh, and so if you want to pick up 80% of the greenfields discoveries, there should be a, a 62 GT hole on the initial program. And the median of all the greenfields discoveries is 115 GT hole. Okay, so, so the significance of this, you know, if we sort of break this down, is that when an exploration's starting and you were you know, at home reading uh, drill releases or press releases rather of drill results, investors should be looking at, okay, what is the grade and over what meterage is it? And if they want to see something, if they, if they rather if they're looking at something and they are, want to invest because they're looking at, to invest in the potential for a discovery, they want to be seeing something that's 115 uh, GTs, right? So something like, 10 grams per ton over 11 and a half meters, for example. If they start to see these yeah. things, then it's something that they should really be paying attention to. Am I, am I interpreting that right? Exactly, yeah. And so obviously these are rules of thumb and you know there are outliers and there's a number of deposits mm -hmm. that don't meet these criteria, but I think you have to look at this if, you know, in, in the positive case, so if somebody does hit 10 meters at 11 grams per ton or 11 and a half grams per ton, you know, then that's that's something that could be really significant. And that's the kind of drill intersect that a lot of these greater than 2 million ounce deposits have produced on, on initial programs. Okay, all right. 
So one question that would obviously come out of this is, does the GT intersect on the first program have any correlation to the size of the eventual deposit? And this is um, on a log-log scale of GT on the y-axis and, and total gold endowment on the x-axis. And so there's, it's, it's kind of a big scatter. Um, but if you really break it down, you know, the majority of 2 million ounce deposits have initial GT intersects of greater than 50 GT. And the majority of greater than 5 million ounce deposits have initial GT intersects of greater than 134, which was the median um, that we saw in the last the last slides. So again, rule of thumb, but you know when we're building this model off of the Canadian greater than two million ounce deposits, and you know when we look at majorities, these are the these are the kind of uh, numbers that we see. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then another interesting thing to look at is the the intersect thickness of those initial holes. And like we were talking about before, so this is the, the thickness of the interval that has gold in it. And so in, in modern gold deposits, uh, the tonnage is one of the big factors of how much gold is there. And so the tonnage is kind of proportionate to the volume, which is kind of proportionate to the, to the gold endowment in the end. And so Grade, you know, varies between, let's say, 1 and 10 grams per ton. So it's kind of only one order of magnitude. But the, the tonnage can really change from, you know, uh, it could change from 1 million tons to 200 million tons. And so tonnage is really one of the big factors that you need to look for. So when I, when I think about this, Francis, I think kind of the key takeaway here is that uh, you know, the thickness does matter a lot, right? So we're talking about finding these 135 uh, GTs, but, you know, having 135 grams per ton over one meter is not the same thing as having 13.5 grams per ton over 10 meters, right? In terms of the, in terms of the likelihood of there being a real major deposit there. Am I, am I interpreting that correctly? Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, if say on initial drill program, you hit one meter of 135 grams per ton, you know, that's, that's probably hosted in a quartz vein and the quartz veins can die out. They can get thinner in places. And so it's really hard to build tonnage in narrow high grade veins. So, right. you know, it's a lot of the time they don't bulk out to be anything really significant. Mm -hmm. um, so so this really comes want, down to the, both the mineability and the scale, right? Like it's got to be something that's big enough to be worth mining, right? And not just yeah. these small little intercepts. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so on an initial drill program, so the tonnage is kind of proportionate to the volume. So the only dimension that we get out of an initial drill hole is, is thickness of the ore body. And so, mm -hmm. You know, we, we don't get the strike extent, we don't get the depth extent, but we do get the thickness. And so if we just look at that thickness and, and look at the GT intersects relative to that thickness, I think there's a really interesting metric that comes out of that. So the majority of greater than 2 million ounce deposits have discovery intersects that are greater than 5 meters of mineralized rock. 
And then the majority of five or greater than five million ounce deposits have intersects that are greater than 10 meters of mineralized rock. So I think this is a, an incredibly powerful metric to, to use and to think about. Um, and, it, and it helps you filter out a lot of the, the kind of small tonnage, high grade deposits that really won't ever bulk out, bulk out to anything. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think that's really interesting to point out. I mean, just yesterday I was, I was reading a press release where they press released, uh, I can't remember what the, it was, 10 or 15 gram per tons, but it was over 0.4 meters uh, in a drill hole. And, you know, you see those really small intercepts and it's, I mean, you're the geologist, but for me, it's pretty hard to get excited over something like that. Yeah. You know, you have to put it in context. Like there are places, um, I've seen pictures of the CB mine in Saskatchewan where the vein goes from something like 50 centimeters at surface. And then at depth, it blows out to, you know, kind of 20 meters wide. And so, mm-hmm. you know, obviously all of these things have to be taken in context and, and there's, you know, you have to look at the geologic environment it's in and all of this kind of thing. But, but yeah, as, as say you're an investor and, and looking at this thing, you know, I don't think I would get too excited of uh, about 50 centimeters of 10 or 15 grams, really. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess we're talking about sort of general metrics people can use, right. And, and that needs to yeah. look at who maybe don't have that, um, you know, that they're not geologists, they don't have the scientific background to really interpret uh, that beyond these things. So yeah exactly yeah so one thing that people might ask as well is the amount of drilling that goes into these initial programs and so i think that's a really important factor to look at and so this is the the number of meters that have gone into all of these initial drill programs and so the median out of out of all these programs is about 4200 meters and so I think that's also something to keep in mind as well is if, if a company goes out and tests a target with less than 4,000 meters of drilling, you know, it's, it's, it's really not that much drilling. And in terms of looking at all of these discoveries, that's the median. And so I think as we go on in time as well, the, the discoveries are going to take more and more drilling. So, you know, that's kind of a rule of thumb is, is look for your junior explorer to be putting something like 4,000 meters into the ground if they're really going to give it a chance. And so and why do you th- think we're going to be seeing more drilling? Is that just because over time the, the low hanging fruit gets plucked and it just becomes more work to find those deposits? Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think, you know, Richard Shoddy is uh, Minex Consulting in Australia, and he always has some really good figures of showing the, the depth of cover as we go in time, and it keeps getting deeper and deeper. And in Canada, you know, a lot of these discoveries were made by drilling under an outcrop. And, you know, I think most of those discoveries are the low hanging fruit and they've been picked. And so, you know, it's, it's really going to take more drilling to, to kind of shake out new deposits, I think. Well, we've discussed this before, uh, sort of the difference in discovery. I don't know what you call it, strategy in a place like Canada versus somewhere like Australia, where Canada has that history of having this outcropping rock that geologists have been able to walk up to and hit with a hammer and take a sample home. Uh, and whilst Australia has a, more of a history of exploring undercover, can you elaborate on that anymore? Yeah, sure. So um, 
I think in general, this is my personal opinion, and I'm Canadian as well, so I'm taking a dig at myself a little bit. Um, but I think in Canada, we, we tend to focus on outcrops and, and looking at outcrops because we have a lot of rock to look at. And we spend a lot of time trying to understand those outcrops to, to help us find a deposit. And so, you know, sometimes that's a good way to do it, but sometimes it can be a distraction as well. And I think in Australia, where they don't have a lot of outcrop, they've had to be a bit more innovative and, and use more geologic thinking and kind of do more systematic geochemistry a lot of the time. And so, you know, the, the nature of exploration is in, in Australia is completely different. And I think in Canada, um, we, we have to get away from that and we really have to start looking undercover and, and stop focusing on mineral occurrences or outcropping mineral occurrences that have been found in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, and let's go out and look for something new. Okay. And so that's where obviously meters drilled starts to make a big difference. Yeah, exactly. And so I think one important thing here to, to talk about is if a company goes out and drills less than 4,000 meters, so and they hit, say, something like a 70 GT intersect on that program, that could be really significant. And then if a company goes out and drills 10,000 meters on an initial program and they don't produce something like a 100 GT intersect and they've tested all of the plausible geologic targets, then I think that that property or, or area should really be downgraded. Yeah, well, this is one of the really hard things uh, for any exploration team, right? Any exploration company is to know when to walk away from an asset. Um, yeah, well, you know, I think Dave, David Lowell had a quote about, you know, mineral exploration is really just about balancing risk. And, you know, I think as explorationists or exploration geologists, that's really our job is to is to balance that risk. And so, you know, you have to know when to keep going and you have to know when to walk away because there's only a, a certain amount of capital available to what we're doing. And, you know, the, the better that you can make those decisions, you know, the, the more effectively that you can kind of allocate that, that capital that's available to you. And so for investors listening at home, uh, when they're maybe invested in a company and they see that more than 10,000 meters have been drilled and they're not hitting this 100, 100 GT or higher, that's time unless there are some, you know, context to that that we're, we're not you know, talking about now. It's time to start thinking about, okay, maybe this asset doesn't have the potential to be what we'd hoped it would be. Yeah. And so I think at that point, you have to look at if you're, you're investing in the company because of the asset or, or because of the team. And, you know, if it's because of the team and they make the right decisions and they make the call to say, okay, we've tested this, I think it's time to walk away, then you know, that's, I think that's an appropriate decision to make. And maybe as an investor, you, you stay with it, but if it's at the asset level, uh, you know, might be time to, to look at other assets at that point. So as an investor, I'll weigh on on this. Uh, mm -hmm. I would be willing to stick with that team if they had other projects in the wing that they were able to refocus on that I thought had sort of equal uh, or greater potential as maybe their primary asset. And I think that's why, you know, smart exploration teams typically have more than one asset early on in their in their genesis until they sort of get that initial hit and say, okay, look, it's time to focus our resources on developing this out. Um, 
that's just my personal opinion on this. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think you really have to do that as an exploration company is because, you know, we're as we're exploring these things to kill them or to move them forward. And it's pretty easy to kill a project. So if you don't have something else to fall back on it, uh, it might be problematic for you. <laughs> All right, let's, let's move yeah. on. Okay. So this is kind of taking that concept um, and, and looking at the meters drilled versus the GT intersects that came out of those programs. And so this is on a, a log log plot and there's a rough kind of linear correlation between those. And so that means, you know, the more meters that you drill on the initial program, the better chance you have of intersecting a, a significant intersect. And I think this is interesting because companies can kind of plot their data on this and, and see where they fall. And obviously there are some outliers like the Cherigniac deposit at, at Meliodine and Nunavut. Um, you know, very, it had a 20 GT intersect on the first program and something like six or 7,000 meters. So obviously it's a, it's a rule of thumb, but there is some kind of linear correlation. Okay. So this is kind of um, a little bit of an aside, but I think interesting as well. It's it's the number of exploration campaigns that led up to the discovery. And so this includes surface work as well. And so the, the median number of campaigns it takes to make a discovery is three campaigns. And so kind of a, a storyline of how this would go would be a company goes out one summer, they do um, geochemistry, fly some geophysics. The next summer they go out and do some prospecting and infill on the geophysics. And then the third summer they go out and drill the targets. And so, and, and so by summer three or four, if they're not starting to find something, then maybe it's time to, to move on. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the point of, of this slide, you know, and, and to be safe, you know, let's say that a company goes out and they've done four passes of exploration and haven't made a discovery. You know, I think at that point, it's like either the company is ineffective or, or the deposit might not be there. Because you don't have a single one on here that hits six, interestingly. Yeah, and, and the only one that hit five is Meliodine, which is in Nunavut in the Arctic. And the work season in the Arctic is is about two months out of the year for greenfields right. exploration. So, you know, in, in general, everything takes longer in the Arctic. Yeah, fair enough. So, this is this is a case study of of looking at all of the initial drilling into the David Bell portion of the Hemlo deposit. And this is interesting because it it goes against all the metrics that we've been talking about. And it's, it's here to kind of show that these are rule of thumb and you have to kind of look at this with a critical eye and, and look at the geology as well. And so the, the David Bell part of the Hemlo deposit was discovered by Corona Resources in 1981. And, and this was the first part of the Hemlo deposit that was discovered. Um, out of 132 holes, the median was a 20, 21 GT intersect. And so you can see a lot of this drilling was really kind of subpar, um, not super exciting. But I think the, the most important thing here was that there's anomalous gold in, in pretty much all of the drill holes. And when you go back and read these drill logs as a geologist, I, I think it would be hard to turn away from this project. 
you know, I think for investors, you know, it wasn't hitting huge intersects and it, putting so many drill holes into this thing. But when you read the drill logs, it's, it's, it looks really incredible. It looks like it's a huge alteration system with, with tons of um, sulfidation and mineralization, but uh, they were just kind of, uh, they were just off, off of the main part of it. Francis, do you have a, an understanding of this deposit and like, is there, is there something unique about it? Why they weren't hitting higher GT numbers? Did they hit them further down the road or, or was it uh, the, the peculiar makeup of this that they just never, they never materialized? Yeah. So, uh, the, I think it was golden scepter who drilled the golden giant part of it, which was, um, I think 500 meters or a kilometer to the Northwest of where this drilling was. Their initial intersects were, you know, 200 GT, 300 GT. So the David Bell portion, um, they were drilling, when they started drilling deeper, that's when they really started tagging into it. And so Hemlo is still kind of a bit of an enigma, um, you know, in terms, it's, it's not a classic orogenic gold deposit or a, or a quartz carbonate vein posted deposit. And so it, it has a bit of a different geometry than, than a typical uh, greenstone belt quartz carbonate uh, vein hosted deposit. Okay. So this is kind of looking at uh, um, the drilling and the drill results that Kenorland put out a couple weeks ago and, and placing it in context of all of these GT intersects of, of all these 2 million ounce deposits. And so this is our Renault discovery. This is a joint venture with Sumitomo Metal Mining. Uh, we intersected 29 meters at eight and a half grams or a 247 GT intersect on the first program. And so this was a completely greenfields discovery. There's no mineral occurrences, there's no outcrop, and there's no historic drilling. Totally undercover. And so comparable GT intersects on initial programs are something like coffee, which was uh, a 285 GT intersect, or Canadian malarctic, which was a 235 GT intersect. And, you know, I think it's worth mentioning or worth discussing, you know, what was the, what did Goldcorp purchase coffee for? Um, it was, I think it was $520 million. And then... Yeah, so uh, Malarctic, that was discovered by a Cisco Mining, the first rendition of a Cisco, and there was a hostile takeover by Gold Corp or a bid by Gold Corp, and then Agnico and Yamana came in. And I can't remember the price, but it was definitely over a billion dollars. Okay. So, you know, this is a bit of an aside, but I think it's worth discussing. You know, you say you went in there, there were no historic drill holes, there was no mineral occurrences. This was basically a blind hole you guys sunk down with Sumitomo and came back with these hits. How did you know to drill there? Why did you choose this particular target? What, you know, how did you, how did you know how to position the drill holes and what angle you were drilling at? What, you know, what in, you know, what guided this attempt? Because it's obviously not just sheer luck. No. And I think, I'll start out with that of, of sending people to our website, canorlandminerals.com, and, and there's a lot more information there, but I'll, I'll talk through it a little bit as well. So we, we started out doing systematic geochemistry of, mm -hmm. of sampling the glacial till, and um, we were talking about this a little bit before. I'll try and not get too technical, but 
a lot of Canada was covered by glaciers in the last ice age, and so up until about 20,000 years ago. And so when those glaciers um, kind of grew and, and, and covered the landscape, they basically bulldozed material as they, um, as they covered the landscape. And so uh, a mineral deposit that's sitting there in the rock, it, it basically got bulldozed and smeared across the landscape. And so that's, that's what glacial till is. And so we went out and sampled glacial till and came up with some good results in this area and we infilled uh, uh, with more glacial till sampling and it got better and better and better and started So when you infill that means you're just you're taking the samples on smaller and smaller grids right and narrowing yeah in. exactly yeah and so the infill soil sampling looked really good and we started prospecting and finding boulders up to 400 grams per ton 400 grams per ton gold um, and so from those boulders, we knew the style of the mineralization. We knew that, okay, this boulder is quartz veins and it's hosted within a diorite, an intrusive rock. And so we did some geophysics and, and started looking for signatures that could satisfy that certain style of mineralization and, and rock type. And, you know, I think one of the key parts of this is we put enough drilling into the initial drill program. So we put 6,000 meters into the initial drill program. And I think that's probably the mistake of a lot of companies is not drilling enough. And, hmm. you know, obviously that's, that's, you know, it's having, having the benefit of having enough money to put 6,000 meters in is obviously a big part of it. Um, but I think in terms of, of actually finding something, when, when you're just getting into an area, you really have to drill enough to, to understand if there's something there. So, you know, you talked about the, the glaciation sort of dragging, smearing these deposits over here. So were you sort of seeing the indicators and in soils, uh, you know, say over here, uh, and then like, did you use geophysics to then say, okay, well, we know there's gold in this area, but the targets over here, based on the geophysics and then this is where you drilled or did you also kind of walk up over here do soil sampling over the top of that see that there was more intense signature am i am i getting this right at all or is that a yeah good no of the process? basically yeah i mean so just if i can do it with my fist and explain to you <laughs> this is the deposit my fist you push everything this way so we're taking sa soil samples kind of we keep going along until you know and they're oh, getting stronger when they get over top of the stronger and stronger higher concentrations yeah yeah and then you get up you know up ice of where the stuff was pushed from and there's no gold there so it's like okay you know the deposit's probably somewhere right. around there yeah and so what kind of grades are you getting here because these are not sort of sexy results that you'd be that a lot of investors would be used to looking for right these are sort of little micro grades parts per billion is that right yeah, because, you know, the the kind of the volume of a mineral deposit is so small compared to the the volume of the rock mass around it. And so when you when you bulldoze this stuff across the landscape, it dilutes it with a lot of other unmineralized material. And so, you know, for us, when we're looking at till um, a 50 parts per billion anomaly in till is is really significant. Mm. So. Interestingly, you said you drilled 6,000 meters here. You came out with this 29.8 meter, 0.08 meters at 8.47 grams per ton. How far was it into that 6,000 meters that you started hitting? 
That's, that's a good question. So it was hole number seven. And so it was about halfway through that, that, um, that 6,000 meters. So you're getting close to that 4,000 mark there where, where, you know, statistically yeah. you, you should be finding something serious. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of, we planned this program after doing this study and it's like, okay, let's kind of use this, this knowledge that we've built up and, and let's drill way over the median, you know, let's drill 50% above and, and let's put a significant amount of meters and we'll test all of the kind of conceptual targets that we have. And if we don't hit something, you know, at least we've, we've gone through all these discoveries and we know that we should have hit something by that point. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. What's next? So I think one question that people will ask is, okay, that's great. Um, but how many false positives are there? How many drill intersects are there out there right. that, you know, you hit, you hit these metrics, so greater than 10 meters, greater than 134 GT. How many are there out there that aren't significant deposits? And so that's kind of a difficult question to answer because the, the data sources in Canada are so different. But we've been operating in Quebec and we have some derivatives of the provincial database. And so we have all of the GT intersects of 156,000 drill holes in Quebec. And so we can look at Quebec as a case study and, and, and look at um, these, these kind of metrics and see what pops out. And so these drill holes are from assessment reports. And so for people who aren't familiar with this, whenever an exploration company does work in Canada, they have to file an assessment report, which records the, it's a report of the work that they've done in the area. And so these assessment reports are typically filed during the early days of exploration. And once a discovery is made, companies usually have significant work credits and they don't have to file reports anymore. And so they, they, stop, they stop filing work after that. And what's a so, work credit? That means they've spent enough money on this project that they, they own it or they effectively own the ability to explore it without reporting for a certain amount of time. What does a work credit for people not familiar with that? Yeah, so generally in Canada, the way it works is if you have a mineral claim, you have to spend a certain amount of money on it in a certain period of time to keep it in good standing. Mm -hmm. And so in Quebec, um, you have to spend $1,200 per claim, but let's say you spend a million dollars per claim. So you can keep drawing down uh, on that million dollars. And so, you know, once a discovery has been made and you're putting kind of 50,000 meters of drilling into it, $1,200 a claim per year. Is that right? Uh, in Quebec, it's two years. For two years. Okay. So, so that million yeah. dollars that lasts many years, for example, and keeps your claim exactly. in good standing. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, after you've put in a 50,000 meter drill program, you've got millions of dollars of credits. And so, you know, why would you keep reporting after that? So right. usually companies stop reporting. But so this so, information is heavily geared towards the early stages of an exploration program. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the key here. And so if we look at the entire Quebec drill hole database, um, we're, we're really seeing the early stage results of, of, those, um, of, of that drilling on significant deposits. So when we plot that up and we use the GT intersect cutoff and the, the intersect thickness cutoff, so what we talked about before, 134 GT and greater than 10 meters of mineralized rock, 
out of those 156,000 drill holes, there's only 217 holes in Quebec that have returned intersects that meet those metrics. And so just to put in perspective of our, our Renault drilling at our FROTEP project, um, we are in some of the top tier of the initial drill holes in Quebec. So how many of those went on to become mines or major deposit discoveries? So this next slide looks at that. Ah, and there we go. Out of, out of the 217, 66% um, are associated with major deposits. And the other 33% aren't associated with major deposits. But as an example of one of those areas that's not a major deposit, the Fenelon uh, the Fenelon deposit falls into that. And so some of the initial drilling at Fenelon uh, was returning 16 meters at 14 grams. And so for people not familiar with Fenelon, it was an old mine that, that produced a little bit of gold. Belmoral Resources held it for a long time and, and Walbridge Mining picked it up um, a couple years ago for, it, it was a really... It was really cheap. I can't remember the exact number, but it was two or three million dollars, I think. And so they went in and started drilling it. And Walbridge's market cap has gone up something like two or three hundred million dollars. And so hmm. I think, you know, when you use these metrics, you can really kind of start to pick things out. And so there's 10 deposits that are on here that are significant in Quebec that are in colors. Um, and you can see the, the GT intersects uh, colored by deposit. There's a number of deposits that are in the dark blue color that are termed as other. And so these are ones that uh, they're not significant deposits yet. And, you know, I think things that fall in the, in this top, uh, this top right quadrant are, are really good um, candidates for, for acquisitions or candidates right. to actually hold a significant deposit. So that 33% of those that there is no known deposit on, that doesn't mean there won't be if they receive the attention that they, they may deserve in terms of drilling. Yeah, exactly. And so a really good example of that is the windfall deposit. And so windfall was discovered uh, in, I think it was the early 2000s. And so the initial drilling into windfall was, it was 76 meters at about two grams per ton. So it was over 150 GT. And Windfall sat there for a long time. Uh, it was picked up by, I think it was Eagle Hill. I can't remember the name, but it was picked up by another company. And then Cisco consolidated the whole camp. And Cisco then put over a million meters of drilling into it. And after that, Windfall has turned into a prospect that had some good initial drilling into a 5 million ounce deposit. So, so will you be uh, publishing the list of those deposits that uh, fall into this category but are not known deposits yet, or those targets, rather? No, you can, uh, you can participate <laughs> on that by uh, buying Kenorland stock. So that's, uh, that will be kept internal. Fair enough. Uh, so just to kind of bring it all home and look at some key takeaways of this. So... Discovery of a new gold deposit is really what drives value creation in the gold mining industry. And so looking at the initial drilling into new prospects, it, it can be used as a rule of thumb to get a sense of, of whether a discovery is significant or not, or if it has potential to grow into something else. 
And so the key metrics that come out of this, this discovery study for greater than 2 million ounce deposits in Canada is that if you're looking for a greater than 5 million ounce deposit, um, the, the median, or, or sorry, you should have a, an initial GT intersect of greater than the median of all deposits, which is 134 GT. And you should look for drill hole intersects that have greater than 10 meters of mineralized rock. For more than 2 million ounce deposit potential, the initial drill program should have a greater than 50 GT intersect, and the intersect length of mineralized rock should be more than 5 meters. And then the initial drill program meterage obviously um, plays a factor in this. So the median drill program on a discovery program is about 4,200 meters. And so if a company drills less than 4,000 meters and comes out with a, let's say, greater than 50 GT intersect, that could be really significant. And I think that should really be followed up with more drilling. And then if a company goes out and drills more than 10,000 meters and tests all of the geologic targets and doesn't come up with a 100 GT intersect, that likely downgrades the property or the target area. And so, as I've been saying, these are really rule of thumb um, concepts and there's always exceptions to the rule and the David Bell part of the Hemlo deposit is, is a really good example. And so I think it's absolutely critical that you have someone on the program that, that can recognize key geologic aspects of ore deposits and, and you know, kind of see those initial, initial factors that, that could be that smoke like you saw at the David Bell part of Hemlo. Francis, how um, can this be extrapolated outside of greenstone deposits? Is this particularly uh, specific to greenstones or are, are we able to, um, apply this or a variation of this to other uh, other other gold style deposits other gold deposits or that's other gold really styles good. of mineralization god yeah go. got it done. <laughs> no and that's uh that's a really good question and obviously this is focused towards towards uh deposits in, in greenstone belts um i think it really depends on the tonnage and and obviously the economics of things so if you're looking for a big porphyry system like the the intersects are crazy. Like you'll get 500 meters of, of a gram gold equivalent or something. And so for that deposit type, there's probably some different metrics. Um, but so for greenstone belts and, you know, this is probably in a way applicable to epithermal deposits as well, which are high grade deposits. Um, so I, I would say that this is probably applicable to high grade gold deposits and, and, probably a little less applicable to huge tonnage, low-grade deposits. Right. And now this is based on Canadian data, primarily Quebec and Ontario, uh, as I understand it. But, you know, could this be extrapolated to greenstone belts around the world, the ones in West Africa or Latin America or what have you? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Like, we're, we're looking at about 650 million ounces of endowment in Canada and, and the initial drilling into, into those deposits. And so, yeah, I think that they can definitely be extrapolated to other parts of the world. Um, you know, the, the geology is similar, the, the types of deposits are similar. And so, you know, I think these are, these are good metrics that should hold across, um, across different jurisdictions. Okay. And I think the last thing we want to talk about here is, uh, you know, what can people expect to see out of Canorland over the coming months? I know you guys are planning an RTO. Uh, what's the timeline for that? And where can people learn more about Canorland and what you guys are up to? 
Yeah, so the next months look like we have a proposed RTO transaction with Northway Resources, which is ntw.b. And if that finalizes, we, we should RTO and be public within three to four months. And so Kenorland will be public uh, in three to four months. We've got a really exciting year coming up where at our Renault discovery, which we've talked about here, Sumitomo uh, will most likely put uh, a large drill program into that. And so on the scale of um, you know, 10 to 15,000 meters. And this isn't, this isn't confirmed yet, but uh, you know, that's kind of what we're expecting. And, and so there's gonna be a lot of news coming out of that. Um, we have a project that was in Northway, the, the Healy project, which is a huge gold and soils anomaly in, in Alaska, comparable to the coffee deposit and, and other deposits in, in the Yukon. And we are going to drill that ourselves with um, probably four to 5,000 meters next year. So that's going to be really exciting. We have a huge till sampling program. Uh, happening with Newmont right now, which is similar to what we did at the ProTet project to to get into this Renault area where we put out the drilling and we're covering three times the area of that project. And I think that's going to get really exciting. We'll have drilling there probably late next year. And there's there's all there's two or three other projects. And so if if people want to know more, uh, you should go to kenorlandminerals.com. And uh, all of this, all this information is on our website as well. All right. Thank you very much. And thank you very much to everyone at home listening. That was Francis McDonald, the Executive Vice President of Exploration from Kenorland Minerals. And if you want to mo learn more, check out kenorlandminerals.com. And thank you very much for watching. Thanks a lot, Francis. Thanks, Jamie. Great to talk.